Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Before we get started, please make sure to head over to our website, limitless-estates.com, and grab our free Passive Investor's Guide. Also, if you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with Kyle on our website as well. All right, now let's get into our show. Today on the show, we have Michael Brady joining us. Michael, glad to have you on. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for having me on. This is great. Awesome. Well, before we head into the interview, here's a little bit about Michael. Michael is the Executive Vice President of Madison 1031. His responsibilities include consulting with clients and their advisors to provide guidance on the regulations affecting 1031 exchanges. Among his seminars and courses, Michael has also published many articles on tax and legal issues and is the primary author behind the 1031 Zone blog. Listeners, if you're in the real estate space actively or passively, you'll want to stick around for this interview. So Michael, I'll let you take it from here and could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Yeah, sure. So I am actually an attorney by training. I've been practicing law for over 26 years, predominantly doing real estate and transactional work, uh, some corporate transactions, but, but predominantly real estate, commercial and residential. I started in the qualified intermediary industry in 2005, where I ran the East Coast for a very large qualified intermediary company uh, that was based out west. From that time until the recession, we were processing just in our office about 300 transactions a month, just to give you an idea of the scale that we were doing. During that time, and actually through my career, I've helped clients defer over a billion dollars in taxation just by using Section 1031. My day-to-day responsibilities now with Madison Exchange is talking to folks like you, uh, helping structure some of the more advanced transactions, and basically answering questions for people that are looking at 1031 exchanges and considering whether it makes sense for their investments. Perfect. So let's start with like a what if situation in 1031. So what if in a situation where your partners have chosen to sell your property, they'd like to cash out, but you want to stay in and do a 1031 exchange. Do you see this often? Yeah. And this is a big issue we see in 1031 exchanges. So often, you know, what happens is people will buy investments with partners in limited liability companies. So you'll have two or more individuals in a limited liability company. Typically, those are taxed as partnerships. So when we do 1031 exchanges, the taxable entity that sells the relinquished property has to be the same taxable entity that buys the replacement property. So if that's a partnership, that means a partnership has to sell and the same partnership needs to buy. So when people want to get out, and this happens for a variety of reasons, it could just be that that was always the plan. They never really wanted to stay together. Or often I find people are selling the property in the first place because the partners aren't getting along, right? They just can't stand each other anymore. So to separate them out, we cannot just sell in the partnership and have them go their own separate ways. Typically what we do, and this requires some advanced planning and the consultation of good tax and legal counsel and and accountants is we typically get them out of the partnership before they sell. It's typically called a drop and swap 
transaction where you drop out of the LLC and have the LLC deed the property to the members as tenants in common. And then as tenants in common, they can go their separate ways. And so you can have, you know, one person can exchange, one person can cash out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is timing. Because if you're doing this on the eve of closing, either the IRS or the state, whoever's you know, looking at the transaction, can say that the individuals have not held the property for an investment, which is a requirement of 1031 exchanges. You know, they've only held it for five minutes, so they're only holding it for resale, which they make a distinction. And you're not eligible to exchange properties that are just acquired for resale purposes. Okay. And so what if one of the partners wants to do an exchange or both partners want to do an exchange, but they want to identify separate properties? Yeah. So that's the same scenario. We could do a drop and swap and, you know, basically have them go their separate ways and buy different properties, or we could do what we call a swap and drop. So we can have the LLC sell the relinquished property. Okay. And then go and buy two properties, one for each partner, essentially. And then at some point down the road, and the safe time frame seems to be about two years, and people can be more aggressive if they want, but two years seems to be relatively safe. They could then drop the properties out one to each partner. You know, so partner A gets property A, partner B gets property B, and they go their separate ways that way. Okay. So is it possible for a 1031 exchange to join a syndicate or become a limited partner in a larger investment? Yeah. So that in and of itself is not possible. As I said, you have to have the same taxable entity. So if I sell as Mike Brady, right, I need to buy a property interest as Mike Brady. I cannot go and buy a property interest in the ABC LLC because what I'm buying is a partnership interest. And I should back up. That's if the ABC LLC has multiple partners, okay? You know, if it's a single member entity and I'm the sole member, that's disregarded for tax purposes, different animal. But I cannot go buy with other people in one single entity. So typically what we see syndicates doing if they want 1031 investors is that, if especially this makes sense if it's a, you know, a big enough investment, they may set up a separate tick structure, tenant common structure. So you'll have the syndicated entity, which will have all the non-1031 money, right? That could have several partners in it, and you could do all kinds of you know, things like waterfalls and preferred returns and things like that in that entity. But then the 1031 investor will come in separately and buy a deeded interest along with the syndicated entity. So the property would be owned, let's say, 25% by the 1031 investor and 75% by the syndicate. Got it. Okay. And are you allowed to force a partner into an exchange or into one of these drop and swaps? So let's just say one of the partners wants to do it, the other one doesn't. Can you force the drop and swap? It really is going to depend on your organization documents. So typically a limited liability company will have what's called an operating agreement, which will govern the relationships between the partners. If you have to see what the terms of that agreement provide, typically a majority vote would rule in something like that in an operating agreement. And so if you had, you know, four partners, each 25% and three one to exchange and one did not, well, they could probably force the one partner into, you know, the minority partner into doing what they wanted. If it's, you know, two partners and it's 50-50, well, then you're probably winding up in litigation, quite frankly to separate, depending on what, you know, unless there's a tie-breaking structure in the operating agreement. So, you know, you really have to look at those documents, which many of us don't give much thought when we form those entities, but they do have real-world implications. 
Yeah. And so in that situation, it may just be better just to sell and pay the capital gains tax because you're going to pay it with the attorneys anyways, right? <laughs> it, it could be, you know, attorney fees and litigation can be very expensive. And so you have to kind of budget that. If it's a big enough gain, you might want to fight the fight. Otherwise, as you said, you may be better off just paying the taxes. Okay. What about on the other side of a syndication when a syndication wants to 1031 and let's just say a couple of the uh, limited partners do not want to join? What does that situation look like? Yeah. So if you're going the opposite way, it's the same thing. You know, you need to get them out of the syndicate to allow them to exchange. Okay. And again, I should mention, I want to just repeat, you know, so you really need to have good tax advice and good legal advice when doing these types of transactions. But typically the way it's structured, again, is you would drop them out into tenant and common. So you could have the syndicated entity would remain as to, you know, everybody who was not going to do an exchange and then you deed out the non the people who want out their percentage interest as tenants in common, and as tenants in common, they can go their separate ways. It's again, it's you have to see what the timing is to see where you are. You know, certain states are challenging these types of transactions, like New York and California. If you're in a state like Texas and Florida that don't have state income taxes, you know, you're less likely to face scrutiny. So it always makes sense to take a look at the entire facts before you do anything like that. I've also heard you can just do the 1031 with the entire party and then buy out those limited partners. Is that another situation that you've heard of? Yeah, you can always buy them out for cash. So if the syndicate has cash, you can always buy those people out independently with non, you know, it should not be cash from the proceeds from the sale, but other cash, right? Or you can go buy a property, the whole syndicate goes and buys a property. And then at some point it refinances the property to pull cash out to go pay off the partners who want to get away. Okay. And so we were talking about this earlier. How does a 1031 exchange affect my ability to do a cost segregation? It does not really affect it. Okay. So you can do a cost segregation study, no problem. What some of the concern was, was we used to be able to do exchanges of personal property, right? That ended in 2018, January 1st, 2018. We, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act restricted 1031 exchanges to real property. So when you do a cost seg study, what you're doing is you're carving up your property and categorizing it as either personal property things like, you know, carpeting and, you know, movable partitions and things like that, landscaping improvements, and your real estate, your real property. So the real estate is what is allowed to be exchanged in a 1031 exchange. The question is, now that we've called this other portion of the property, personal property, can we still exchange it? And the thought is, and I'm not sure there's a definitive answer on this, but it seems to be the industry thought is that while we're categorizing these assets as personal property for depreciation purposes, the fact that they're fixtures and attached to the real property makes them real property for 1031 exchange purposes. And we should probably do a cost seg on our acquisition also to match up those items so that you know, they're, you know, you're buying similar value of, of carpeting and et cetera, et cetera, to match up in the 1031 exchange, but it should not impact the actual exchange itself. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Okay, and then as far as recapture, if you're going to 1031, do you still have to pay the recapture if you've done the cost segregation on the first property? No, again, as long as you're matching up and so you have, you know, similar items in to match up with your your cost seg on your uh, relinquished property, you should defer the recapture as well. Okay, and so in the situation of separating out some with a tick you know, to get out of the 1031 and the others going into it, would then the recapture only apply to those in the tick? 
Yeah. So the, yeah, the tick investors are not only going to face the capital gains taxes, they'll face their portion of the recapture as well. Okay. That makes sense. Got it. So can we go back to the drop and swap a little bit? You mentioned that that is a concept that is used by the uber wealthy. How exactly is that maybe, can you go into more detail on how the wealthy really utilize that function? The drop and swap? Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a product of the uber wealthy. You know, we have investors on all scales using the drop and swap structure. So it's, you know, many of our clients, you know, regardless of, you know, what the size of the property is, have used it. What you, you may be thinking of is the fact that there is some gray area about drops and swaps is that you really need good tax advice to go into it. And so on a smaller transaction, you may not want to invest the legal dollars, you know, again, the, you know, the accounting fees, et cetera, et cetera, to go through a drop and swap just because maybe the profit doesn't make sense. You know, your gain doesn't justify the cost. But otherwise, you know, we see investors of all scales doing the drop and swap. Okay. And then are there any alternatives right now to a 1031 exchange that you see as beneficial? So we do see the, well, first of all, within the 1031 exchange, you know, one of the items that you come up against or issues you come up against is finding good replacement property in a short 45-day period. And so there are things called the Delaware Statutory Trusts which is you would buy a fractional interest in a larger institutional grade property that somebody else would manage. And those are kind of off the quote unquote, off the shelf replacement property for 1031 investors. Those do tend to be something that only the more, I should say, economically well off, not necessarily wealthy would benefit from because you need to be an accredited investor in order to invest in them. Meaning that you have to have annual income of $200,000 as a single person. And I think I'm off on that number. It might be 250 as a single person and 300 as married couple finally jointly for the two years prior or a million dollars in assets, not including the value of your primary residence. So, you know, it's higher income earners can benefit from the Delaware Statutory Trust. And the other thing is the Qualified Opportunity Zone, which we can spend another hour and a half talking about. But essentially, that allows people who have any type of capital gain, whether it be from real property or from stocks, from bonds, from selling collectible artwork, you know, selling just about any asset that has gain they can invest their gain into an opportunity zone, which is an area where the median income is less than 80% of the average median income for that region and has been designated as a zone that qualifies for these types of investments. And they're very, very powerful for investors who have the capital and who are willing to, essentially, if you're buying real property, you have to realize that that's a development play because the property has to be substantially improved in a very short period of time. Yeah, exactly. You have to double your basis. So in value add multifamily, it doesn't quite make sense. I know they are looking at some of those regulations to see if maybe they can tweak those to help, you know, the multifamily space. But yeah, essentially, if unless you're doing ground up, it really doesn't benefit or have any, you know, you cannot defer your taxes in that situation. Right. Or the other thing that you can look at is if you're buying something that's been vacant, and I forget what the last reg said, I think it was three years. If the building is vacant, you do not have to substantially improve it. If it's, you know, basically something that's just been sitting there as a blight in the neighborhood for, you know, an extended period of time, those, just the fact that you acquired it, they're probably going to require gut rehab anyway, in my opinion. So I don't know that you get much benefit from that. Got it. Okay. Is there anything that we haven't discussed as far as 1031 exchanges that you'd like to cover? 
Yeah, just real quickly, you know, the most important thing what I want to get across to all of your listeners is that 1031 exchanges do require planning. You know, so don't, you should not just wander into your closing and decide at the last minute to do an exchange. Because number one, you need to set up the exchange before you close. If you close on either of your properties before you set it up with a qualified intermediary, well, it's too late. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube and you're going to wind up paying taxes. You know, number two, the timeframes are very, very short. So you only have 45 days from the closing to find and identify the property you want to acquire. That's a month and a half roughly. So it goes very, very quickly. So if you don't start shopping until the day of your closing, you're going to find it very hard to find good replacement property. And I always tell people I'd rather pay taxes than buy a bad property, right? I mean, we know what our downside is in paying taxes. When you buy a bad property, your downside is unlimited, right? So it's a lot more than the 30 you know, plus percent you might pay in taxes. You could lose everything. So make sure you're buying good investments and doing your homework ahead of time. And then, of course, you only have 180 days from the closing of your sale to close on your replacement property. So, again, if you run into hiccups on, you know, a bad phase one or phase two where you have environmental problems or, you know, you're not able to get your financing, you know, that all can, you know, or title issues, you know, all these things can create issues if you're doing a 1031 exchange, more so than your regular investment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, a 1031 exchange should not be your primary reason, right, for tax deferral. It should be secondary to purchasing a good prudent investment. That should always be first. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about in a situation, so let's just say you identified a property after 40 or before 45 days, and for some reason, you know, day 80, it drops out. It just, you couldn't close, the seller decides to default or whatever the reason may be. Is there any course that you can then get corrected or are you done and you're going to have to pay the capital gains tax at that point? Yeah, it depends. So you can identify multiple replacement properties, you know, before the 45 days. So if you have the one that you're pretty certain that you're going forward with, you can name two other backups. You know, you can name up to three properties regardless of value. So if one falls through, you have two to fall back on. If all three of those properties fall through in, you know, within 180 days, and like you said, day 80, that you just cannot buy anything you identified, well, then you're out of luck. Uh, unfortunately, then you'll just get your, your money at the end of the exchange, which could be as long as 180 days from the closing of your sale, and you'll have to pay taxes on it when your taxes are due. Okay, so it sounds like it's just important to always identify more than one property instead of just identifying one and expecting to close on that. Yeah, I would say that's true to a degree. So, I mean, if there's, I wouldn't just name properties if there's no chance that you're going to acquire them, right? Because then you get tied up and your money could be tied up for the full 180 days, which maybe not the end of the world, but maybe not what you want. So I wouldn't just identify properties for the sake of identifying them if there was no chance I was going to buy them. That's kind of where the Delaware statutory trust is not a bad option. It's a good backup for somebody who's, you know, maybe identified a property that they like. Well, here's something that you're going to be able to buy. You know, you know, it's going to be available. You know, you work with a, a registered rep to identify those and those could be your backup if there's nothing else that's, that interests you in the marketplace. Okay, got it. All right, Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by asset protection attorney, Wayne Patton. We all spend a lot of time thinking about ways to make more money but how much time have you spent thinking about legal strategies to protect your wealth? Whether you're a professional, an investor, or an entrepreneur, you are at risk of being targeted in a lawsuit. 
Wayne is an attorney who specializes only in asset protection strategies, like the use of offshore trusts. If you'd like to learn more about how you can protect your assets, visit mwpatten.com or assetprotection.law. Mention this podcast and Wayne will waive his customary $750 initial consultation fee. Again, the website is mwpatten.com or assetprotection.law. Or you can call Wayne at 877-727-1092. Call now and get protected today. Uh, What is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you cannot do without? Well, I guess for me, you know, uh, that we deal with every day is Section 1031. But, uh, you know, I think for many people, a good cap rate calculator is pretty useful in determining what value is in the marketplace and whether the property you're looking at makes sense. Great. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing and what is the main takeaway for our listeners? Yeah, my biggest mistake, I think, was not doing my homework. And so there was an investment I got involved in. I thought I had vetted it and discovered that there was some things with the neighboring properties that made the property a little bit less attractive than I otherwise thought it was. So always, you know, do your homework, find a good real estate broker to kind of, you know, and trustworthy real estate broker to give you the ins and outs on any neighborhood you're investing in, especially if it's outside your typical marketplace where maybe you're based. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Education. I'm always trying to learn. You know, I'm somebody who's constantly reading, always trying to find the next thing. If there's something I don't understand that puzzles me, I always try to figure it out. I like getting through those puzzles. And I think that serves anybody who's looking to kind of grow their life. Absolutely. And finally, Michael, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, sure. So typically the best place to reach me is by email, mbrady at madison1031.com. You can check me out on LinkedIn as well. I typically post most of the articles that I write there. And we have the Madison 1031 Zone blog, which you can find at madison1031.com. Well, thank you for sharing all that valuable and free education to our listeners today. We really appreciate your expertise and for being on our show. Yeah, thank you both for having me on. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to limitless-estates.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.